listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. Happy New Year. I'm Daria Brown, and this week I am pleased to welcome Helen Groth as my guest to discuss the dynamic process of transitions in autism. She is a British-trained dynamic special educator currently living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Although she hails from the United Kingdom, as you'll hear, Helen has spent many years living and working in Singapore as well. Her work is rooted in relationships, building trust with families through respectful interactions. She's a lifelong student who is always reading and learning through additional training and mentorship. And Helen gave a fabulous presentation at the International Council on Development and Learning's 2022 virtual conference a few months ago on transitions that I took so much away from. And I really am so excited to welcome her this week to share her presentation material with us. So welcome, Helen. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here, Daria. Well, I can't wait to get going. Um, I think the best thing to start with is to ask, what is a transition? Sure, let's start that way. And uh, when Colette Ryan presents, she always starts with a, a definition, doesn't she? So I think we'll follow in her footsteps this morning. So the dictionary says that a transition is the process or a period of changing from one thing to another, from one state or condition to another. Um, it's the act of experiencing a change. But um, when I was presenting in the conference, I shared that I find looking at some synonyms can also help to understand um, a word. So here's some synonyms for transition. So we could use the word flux. We could use the word growth. We could think of a transition as a switch, a shift a little adjustment, an adaptation, maybe some sort of transformation or an evolution. But I think basically for me, um, if we pair it right back, I think a transition involves two things, the capacity to stop and the capacity to start. So that would be to stop what you're doing currently and then to start doing that next thing. And we all know that that can seem very um, easy, very simplistic, or oh, stop, start, we do that all the time, but we all know that that just is such a complex process and creates such strong emotions in our children and the children that we work with. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, the first thing that jumps out to me is dropping my son off at school in the morning. Um, just that transition of being in that safety with my mom to jumping into school, especially at the beginning of a school year where the teachers are new and some of the kids might be new. And, and you know, um, the self-advocate Kieran Rose that I've done a few podcasts with, um, we, we talked through this in our um, pot, one of our podcasts a lot about transitions, how, you know, uh, neurodivergent individuals and specifically autistic individuals, but also people with ADHD, just get immersed in what we're doing and it's like sucking, I, I think he described it as like sucking someone out of a black hole and then having to reshift your focus and go into something else. And for our kids, it's really hard because, you know, I remember my, my little guy at nursery school, they'd be playing in the middle of something. And all of a sudden you have to up and go to the other room and have a snack. And they did a wonderful job of, you know, La, 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 la. I, I don't remember what the song was, but singing this little song like snack time, time to go, time to line up or whatever, and doing these little tools to sort of help the child transition from one thing to another. But so often adults are so, you know, rushed and they get impatient with the kids like, come on, come on, come on, and don't give that time to do that transition. So I'm really excited to, to dive into this today. <laughs> so in the presentation, I um, suggested, you know, who as a parent or as a professional, who hasn't gotten resistance from a child when they're asked to stop playing a video game and perhaps come to the table for dinner? Um, you know, think about the playground and you've been playing for an hour or so and then you have to get into your car seat. 
And, you know, it seems simple, doesn't it? As we said before, stop one thing and then start the next. But think of the joy and the pleasure at the playground. You've been swinging and sliding, uh, spinning, running, perhaps with a friend or with your mom chasing you. Um, these joyful preferred activities, the freedom that you have at the playground. And then if we think about the car seat for a minute, such a contrast, um, your body in a fixed position and that desire for movement curbed by the straps and the car seat fixes how your body has to sit, doesn't it? Um, another one that I used at the presentation in October was um, new shoes or new clothes. And I shared at the conference that in our house, clothes is a big issue. Um, it doesn't have to be new clothes in the sense of tags and, you know, the stickers, you know, new clothes from Target. It can simply be that I wash the leggings and that they feel tight again. Oh, my daughter this morning, we've had that long weekend with Martin Luther King Day yesterday. And so we had to put on uniform again today and I'd wash the leggings and the top. So she's busy stretching the top and putting body lotion on and doing all her strategies to try and support herself to feel okay with the clothes that had been freshly laundered. And sometimes we're okay wearing the same leggings all week. There's breakfast, lunch, snack, mud, craft projects on them. And I just wait until she's ready to, to part with the leggings and, and try a clean pair. Yes, yes. Um, it the same thing happened with my son this morning. Your first example, uh, in the middle of a video game, and I had to get him dressed for school. And yeah, he did not want to leave that. As soon as I'm done this, as soon as I'm done this, as soon as I'm done this, he would say for an hour. So <laughs> yeah, these happen in our lives, you know, every single day, multiple times. Yeah, I've just been playing with a child and we had the train set up. We had the little people animals. I must have a bin of about 80 little people animals. We had them all set up on the track and we have the train ready to go. But of course, we're at time and it was time to go feed the fish at school. Um, but we whizzed the train and we knocked all the animals off the track. And when every animal was off the track, he was ready to go. He made his transition and he'd worked through his process and he was, he was good to go feed the fish at school. I really, um, one phrase that you used during the presentation that stuck with me was it's moving from the known to the new. And it just describes it so perfectly because I'm what I'm doing right now is familiar to me, I know. But now you're asking me to go to something new that I may or may not know what's coming. And especially with our kids who live in the moment, if they're still developmentally in the early earlier functional emotional developmental capacities that we talk about in floor time it's just so hard to imagine something that is not right in front of them so I thought that was such a great definition that moving from the known to the new thanks um and I'll just kind of backtrack a little bit that um at the conference Stuart Shanker defined stress as anything that causes us to burn energy to maintain that homeostasis that I just talked about. And um, I think when we thinking about the dysregulation around transitions that we can clearly see the child's vulnerability during a transition experience uh, as an expression of their stress, this need to burn additional energy to kind of maintain that homeostasis for themselves. And um, I think Stuart Shanker really called us to action, didn't he? He asked, you know, posed the question, how do we turn that stress off for children? And it's us. It's through that relationship piece that is so integral to floor time that we can support and we can scaffold and we can help children move from that known piece, the piece that is regulating for them, that's organizing to that new piece that's dysregulating, that is um, uncertain for them and causes that stressful piece for them. And you know, I talked about relationship just then. We, we don't want somebody to doing any of this transition independently. We want them to be doing it interdependently within that relationship with their caregiver, with their teacher, uh, with their grandparent, so that we've got that support in place that they can 
with ease and with less stress move from that known to the new. Yeah, and I also liked the point you brought up that <clears throat> in some people, novelty creates uncertainty um, like that you talked about, it's perceived as a stress, but some kids positively feed off of that, um, but not others. So I can think of situations where, you know, that novelty and, and that I described with my son, like going into school or, you know, um, having to leave the iPad to get dressed or those kinds of things um, is hard, but he also has times where, and, and it, it doesn't necessarily I, I don't know this, but the example I'm thinking of has to do around his interest, which currently is Mario Kart. So if he knows we're going to someplace that's Mario Kart, it might be something totally new, a place he's never been to. Um, I told him there's a, a Mario museum of some kind in New York City, so he wants to go there. They're building Super Nintendo World in Orlando at Universal Studios. In two years, it's supposed to open. He wants to go there. So that would be something novel but he would feed off that because it's something around his interest. Um, sometimes I know because he liked going out to restaurants, it, it was fine to go into a new restaurant because it was exciting. He loves to stay at hotels when we go on vacation. So he's excited to go into a new hotel and that's novel. So it's, it's not that every single time we're transitioning. Cause I mean, let's face it, every minute of every day is a transition, but um it, it's interesting how, you know, sometimes I think that's part of the frustration for parents is, well, they were fine doing this, but they're not fine doing this. And and so it, sometimes it can be a bit of a crapshoot when you think about, you know, what's going to set my kid off today? And, and of course, I'm sure we'll get into it, but, you know, are they tired? Are they hungry? Are they sick? Are All of these things can affect it as well, which is, you know, about, about regulation. Yeah. And that's the I, isn't it? It's those individual characteristics of each child in each moment, reading those cues, make sure that we're a strong cue reader and that, you know, we're supporting our child to be a strong cue sender as well. Um, mm -hmm. But I like mm -hmm. how you juxtapose the the um, the novelty that some children, you know, that really does create alertness, doesn't it, in their systems. It really, you know, that high exposure to new things really brings them online and captivates them. And, you know, you can thrive under newness sometimes. Um, and some children without that novelty can quickly get bored. But I think with our floor time eyes, we can see that, um, you know, the safety in sameness, the predictability when you've got that known event, that known activity that you're doing. Um, some people might see rigidity or that there's stuckness in that. But I think, you know, I was talking about the animals we were lining up this morning and the train that we were playing. You know, there's regulation, isn't there, in that joy? There's pleasure, there's organization in your body and in your mind. And the engagement with your caregiver as you're passing animals, passing train carriages to make this super long train this morning that was going to knock the animals off. So it's all the time just being in the moment, being really present to what's happening and keeping our calm and keeping our cool. So what's happening in the brain while transitions are taking place? <laughs> Good question, isn't it? And I think that depends on which which um, state you're in, doesn't it? Are you in that state of regulation or are you a little over aroused and upregulated state as to, as to where you're at? Um, and how can we use ourselves to, to turn that, um, that threat, that fight or flight mechanism off for the child through, I talked in the presentation about that sense of being with the child, that um, invitation to engage, that's being with them in a very gentle, very soft way so that there's, you know, we're not adding another demand that we're reducing that threat level and back to that mm -hmm. safety zone for them. So this is a slide that I pulled from your presentation, which I think sort of describes what you've been talking about, um, you know, moving from a perceived sense of threat to safety. So you have here on the left for those listening on audio under threat, intentions, agendas, goals, plans, expectations, everything that's adult driven, judgment, demands. 
So if the child is feeling any of these things, that is a threat to them. And then we want to move towards that feeling of safety that Helen was talking about. So being with the, the person that's transitioning, holding that space for them, joining them in that, um, in what they're feeling and connecting with them, encouraging them, having that invitation to transition and with curiosity and that sense of appreciation. So that's what's on the slide if you're listening on audio. And I think all of those things, Jari, just support this felt sense of safety, don't they? We're not talking about don't touch that because it's hot. We're talking about this internal radar. We have this, Stephen Porges talks about this neuroception, this subconscious sense that we have that we're safe, that the relationship that we're in is nurturing, that it's pleasurable to us and that we can really thrive and, um, you know, move from one thing to the next thing when we're in this sense of of safety absolutely uh okay so we've covered what transitions are we've gone through some definitions we've given some examples we've talked about what's happening in the brain and how it's perceived as a threat how can we support and scaffold these transitions because that's what any parents that are listening or, or perhaps teachers or or um, practitioners want to know, you know, if they have a an, an one hour session or even a 45 minute session with a child and the first 20 minutes is spent transitioning and then, you know, they feel like they can't get what they want to do in that session. And then the parents feel like, oh, I paid for an hour, but my kid screamed for 20 minutes of that or 30 minutes or 40 minutes of that, you know? Uh, so yeah, how can we support and scaffold? And you started to talk about that, but I know, uh, you want to get into that more. Sure. And I think some of what you've just said then is, you know, we need to drop that agenda of our own, don't we? That that's what the child needs in the moment. Support with making that transition. And how can we use ourselves, this art that we need to learn as a parent or as a therapist, how we're modifying ourselves, how we're modifying that relationship, building that capacity to to change, to shift from one thing to the next. And I think we have to move away from thinking, oh, all that money and my child just cried. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a learning opportunity. It's a moment for everybody to, to regulate, to co-regulate and to be in the moment together, to have the support of the, the therapist, whoever it is that you're working with, um, and to, to learn together, to try some of these strategies, um, to you know, get rid of that need to move on, that that haste that we can have. And just a lot of my presentation was about being with somebody, that connection with somebody, um, honoring that person, um, all those emotions, all those feelings, they're all, all valuable. We need that whole range of emotions, don't we? There isn't a good one and a bad one. Some are easier as a parent and some are less easy for a parent, but we need to embrace those so that the child has the experience of having a, a, a difficult, a challenging moment, but knowing that they're cared for, knowing that they're valued, knowing that they can express this full range of emotions and be safe with that person they're with. I, and I think that is something that's so important that a lot of people overlook. Um, I know as a parent, it's something I never thought of. Like, I always think that, oh, no, you know, we need to get past this meltdown to really get to what we're doing. But the work is the meltdown. Uh, that's that's where you're, you know, that's the most, I think, in my experience, speak for myself, stress that I experience is when my son is stressed. You know, every other time, you know, he's he's wonderful, he's fun, and, you know, we're doing stuff, it might be a little difficult or whatever, but when he's stressed, I get really stressed. And what better way to lower our stress than to learn how to deal with what to do when we are super stressed. And those moments of meltdown when you're with a therapist are great opportunities to really help practice co-regulation and what can we do to make, you know, both of us calm. Sure. Yeah. And um, yeah, I like what you say. It's not getting past it. It's 
having the capacity to stay in that moment, whatever the moment is, be it pleasurable eating ice cream or with the trains or with your cards that your son plays with. But, you know, in those moments that are more tricky for us when that shark music from Circle of Security plays for us, you know, that we can be with it and we can be with our child and support them. And as you said, they're great opportunities, aren't they? That um, I think if your child can can have those moments of dysregulation, those moments of disorganization with their primary caregiver, such an opportunity. You know, you can, you know your mom is there, you know your dad is there, you know grandma's there, but to do that with an unfamiliar adult, that must feel mm-hmm. very scary, but we're setting them up for success when we give them those opportunities to practice with us. And floor time is all about that, isn't it? Repeated experiences, practice practice and there's no rush in floor time yes yes and i i wrote down something that you said during the presentation you're creating an intentional pause that feels like an invitation so slowing down we we talk about this a lot in floor time slow down don't rush just slow down stay in the moment the being versus doing podcast i did with jackie bartell slow down have that intentional pause and make it like an invitation. And I know that's so easier said than done because a lot of times our kids will fare better with strangers because they don't feel safe enough to break down in front of strangers. So the parents get all of the stress because that's when they feel like they can be themselves. And that that's so uncomfortable for a lot of parents. So, um, you know, while the child might not feel safe with somebody else and transitions might be hard, sometimes they will show their meltdowns to us instead, especially when they start to get a little older, like maybe when they're two, three, it might be different. But I mean, I could say the opposite too. I could say when you're two or three, you're even more living in the moment. So you out of sight, out of mind, right? <laughs> you drop the child off. It's a dynamic they... process, isn't it? Of yeah. full time, which is such a gift, isn't it? We always come back to the D, the developmental piece, the I, the individual differences and the relationship and how are any of those three fitting together or not fitting together so well in any moment. But I'll just come back for a second, Dara. You said that we were trying to slow down and create that intentional pause that felt like an invitation to the child. And I'll just add to that 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 invitation is that um, we're creating the space for them to initiate into that we're the same thing with, you know, in floor time, not leading with our agenda, not adding our ideas, but just creating that soft landing space, that pause, that moment for the child. What are they going to initiate into that moment? And I think you did a podcast with Maud LaRue, didn't you, that talks about going slower to actually go faster yes. in the end, which is um, a fantastic learning lesson too, isn't it? That when we provide that gift of time for a child that there really is that opportunity for them to slow down that there's the opportunity to reconnect to adjust and shift a little um, emotionally cognitively in their body um, to find their own meaning in that pause without us adding our meaning to it Um, you know that's so important because we always feel like we have to solve it. You know, oh, my my child's freaked out. I have to solve it and make it better. But we're saying no, like they have to learn how to solve it for themselves. And of course you can't expect, you know, a two-year-old or something to do that. And we don't expect our children to do it either. But we want to at least be there as that cocoon or safety buffer while they're figuring it out without giving them the answer by solving everything. Um, I know we're talking very vague, but. And that's the you, case for this, isn't it? That, that um, these are ways of adjusting ourselves. These are ways of being with our child, with the um, child that we're working with, because we don't know somebody's exact profile. We don't know this individual's um, unique characteristics. So we are talking today quite broadly um, about ways of being, um, because it would be not so ethical, would it, to to talk very specifically. 
Um, but in those moments, another strategy that I did suggest in the presentation was asking wondering questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and that um, they really support me to be in the moment, to have a curious mindset, to be non-judgmental, just pose gentle, wondering questions that kind of guide my thinking in the moment, or maybe with a client, I've had the video running and recording the session, I can look back later and see what I missed and sort of frame my um, self-reflection on the session with some wondering questions. Did you want to name what the wondering questions are? And I will include them in the blog post with today's sure. podcast. Yes. Let's do that. So in the presentation, and I should say that um, I'm somebody that likes to collect things. And one of the things I've started collecting is these wondering questions. So if somebody listening hears a question and thinks, oh, that was mine, just know that it was added to my collection and that <laughs> we're sharing them today and that they will go further and help and support more children and more families. So um I think if we think about the floor time model that to frame all of our thinking, we're always wondering, first of all, what are the individual strengths? So in any moment, we're thinking about strengths and how can we build from those to support vulnerabilities? I think we're also thinking in a moment of transition as to perhaps what's disrupting or what's hindering the engagement, what's disrupting the interaction. Um, maybe we're thinking about the child's vulnerabilities and what is it that we can do to scaffold and support those vulnerabilities. And I think we're also thinking about that relationship piece. How can we adjust and how can we attune ourselves so that we can support the child in those moments and support ourselves? Because while we want to bring out the best in the other person, we're also wanting to bring out the best in ourselves, so that we have this lovely floor time dance with each other when we're both at our best. Um, in the presentation, I shared some more specific questions, which I think you'll post for people to actually see. Um, but I'm just wondering in a transition moment, you know, how big is that transition for the child in the scheme of things and in their life experience? Is this like one of those big moments or is it a, a smaller transition moment for the child? Um, I'm also thinking with younger children um, and maybe as children age, you know, what is their experience with transitions? Um, are these moments where they've experienced support and scaffolding and empathy and respect? Or have they had stressful moments of being hurried and that adult agenda? Um, because sometimes we do have to get to the grocery store or we do have to get to the dentists because there's, there's a time and we have to show up at that time. And sometimes we do have to hurry. Um, I'm also wondering in a transition moment, um, is there a motivator that I could perhaps harness? And is there a demotivator that I could perhaps try and um, um, wave my magic wand and, and get rid of somehow, evaporate? Um, I'm also wondering, we talked before, if these difficulties are happening in a session, you know, what's the parent's um, perception? How's the parent feeling in that moment with us and how can we support them as well? Um, I wonder for the child, what's the meaning for the child in the transition? We talked about the video game and moving to the dinner table and, and to eating. How can we support the child to find meaning moving from here and to here? And you talked very cleverly about your strategy of creating fun in that movement from here to here. How can we have some fun in that actual movement, that shift from A to B? Um, I can't remember, what was it that you said that you did with, with your child to create that moment of fun? I know Gretchen uh, Kampke's talked about using scooter bikes and scooter boards to enable the child to physically move in a fun way from one thing to the next. Well, that's a great idea. Um, I was talking about at my son's nursery school. They had a little song during every it. transition. Yeah. So um, I, I wish I, I, 
it took me years to finally get it out of my head because it gets stuck in my head and it was annoying to me, but now I can't remember it. So I don't want to try to remember it, but anyway, <laughs> you know, it's la, 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 and you know, like maybe gentle clapping or whatever. And slowly the kids, you know, that's their cue to sort of move yeah. forward. So, <laughs> yeah. but it was a cute little song. Yeah. So hopefully that helps people with some of those wondering questions. We're not looking for an answer particularly. We're just looking to support our dysregulation maybe into becoming more regulated and to add that cognitive piece where we can try and scaffold our thinking and to scaffold our ways of being with our child through considering different aspects of the transition moment. So then because this is floor time, I suppose we should mention playing, shouldn't we? Because floor time is all about the playing. And we know that it should always look, you know, as if everybody's having fun and as if it's just playing. But we know from the conversation that we're having this morning that there's just so much complexity supporting the playing, um, our way of being with that other person. And um, I think our playfulness really supports that foundation, doesn't it, of safety that we were talking about earlier, that um, supports the brain to really function as an integrated whole so that we don't lose that brain-body connection that Mona Delahook talks about. Um, and I think through our playing that depth to it, it's really our therapeutic use of self, isn't it? Those intentional decisions that we're making in the moment to support the child, um, informed by that self-reflection, informed by those wondering questions. Um, so in the presentation, I had a slide that um, suggested that we were coming alongside the child during a transition, that we were using that floor time strategy of following their lead during the transition, this sense of being together, joining the child's world, not pulling them into ours with our agenda, but joining their world, um, really pausing and waiting, another great floor time strategy, um, that in that waiting, it's very active, that we're posing internally those wondering questions to ourselves, um, that we're making sure that we're available. We've not got our phone in one hand. You know, we're fully in the moment and, and present with our child and with their experience. And that really we're trying to match their affect, match their energy, and then shift from there. And just building that rhythmicity, building that synchrony with them, not falling into the hole with them, but supporting and scaffolding so that they can reach that homeostatic place again with us, which leads us into perhaps the scaffolding piece where we're building these little bridges for the child to use, um, adding structure that they can support themselves with to get to that next spot, um, always joining the child first so that we can create that shared world, that connection, those ways of being with each other. And we've talked already, we're not imposing, we're not trying to direct them, not controlling, um, not trying to divert them, that this range of emotions is what we need to feel. Um, and you know, considering what's going to be the right challenge in this moment, what's going to be the right invitation, that will create that just right success for the child to move through this and get to that next thing that's perhaps creating that uncertainty that we talked about earlier. And what you said, I think, is so often overlooked that staying in the moment and joining the child, you know, what does that mean to a lot of people? And, you know, it's it's really about you know, empathetically looking at the child and figuring out like, what is this child experiencing right now? And when you said, you know, not really giving an answer, but you're sort of, you know, waiting and just sort of using that time to join the child, that, that seems abstract for a lot of people, but it's, I see that overlooked all the time. You know, if I, if, if I see things in real life or in videos where, everybody's trying to rush to the next thing. And, and we can say it 8 billion thousand times and people still don't do it. But, you know, just sitting in that moment and literally doing nothing but experiencing your child and just, you know, if they're going, ah, you know, like melting down or whatever, you're just sort of like, 
you know, breathing and looking and saying, wow, like thinking in your head, they're really experiencing something that's very traumatic right now. And just allowing yourself to feel that moment without trying to fix it. Like it, we can say it 50,000 times, but it's, it's something that people just don't do enough. Um, and it's and not, for me, it's not something to fix, Daria. You know, yeah. people are not something to fix, are yeah. they? That this moment might be more difficult than the last or the next, but it's not something to try and divert from or move away from. That um, it's just a um, an aspect of life to experience the joy of life. We have to experience those more difficult moments. Um, life is is a moving feast, isn't it? Of of different sorts of moments, and I feel we have to embrace all of them. Yeah. And, and as we mentioned earlier, like getting the individual to find that solution within themselves is, is really hard. Cause you know, they're looking to us, they're stressed and we just want to solve it, especially if it's our child. And especially if we watch them go through medical trauma, like my son, um, you know, I just want to fix it and hug them and hold them and everything's okay. But we also want to say like, you know, just with your presence, that invitation, like I'm here for you while you're going through this stress, but you've got to figure it out yourself too. Um, but, you know, you're doing it in with the safety of me here. And, and again, it sounds so abstract, but it's such an important thing. One thing that you brought up that really stuck with me too, was the distinction of feeling the transition. And that's what we're talking about. It, it's all about these emotions versus you know this cognitive memorization of coping through it which things like the song like la 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 you know it might be this oh there's the song i'm going to go through and do this motion and i've memorized that when they sing the song that means we go to the other room and that's sort of more of a, a cognitive memorization of of coping through a transition versus really experiencing that feeling of disappointment like ah oh, I really didn't want to leave. And oh, now I've got to go to this new thing. And I'm scared this is about to happen. And, and I just want to stay. And, and I'm mad my mom isn't solving it for me. And I'm mad that this person's making me do this. And, you know, that's a, a big distinction, like really experiencing that feeling. Because until you feel it and and sort of adapt to it, it's just sort of moving through. And then it'll explode later. Kind of thing if it's if it's for me this seems to get into that interoception piece that mm -hmm. we're all the time building up a library aren't we of experiences experiences that feel safe experiences that feel less safe to us and experiences that are good and bad experiences that are a move towards or a move away from and we want children to know this we want them to know what is a good experience for me and what is an experience that feels less comfortable for me? This is important information. This is information that keeps our children safe. And we want them to know these things about themselves, to, to have that internal sense, that interoceptive awareness of what feels good to their body and to their mind and what feels less good to them. Because um, it makes you vulnerable. If you, if you don't know these things about yourself, I feel you're in a vulnerable position and we want our children to be resilient. We want them to, to know themselves and we want to raise children that really have, um, you know, a full repertoire of, of strategies for every moment, not just the good ones. And to be able to set boundaries for themselves when they're older too. Um, talked about in one of the podcasts um, about being allowed to say no. Um, so many of our kids are just pushed through compliance-based therapies and they never get a chance to say, no, I don't like this. And it's so important for when they're growing up to be able to say no, so they're not put in those vulnerable positions. And um, I liked the quote that you gave from Kim Bartell, who I believe is a Canadian occupational therapist, yeah, is she? Yeah. Um, yeah, so... I've been told for years, I need to get her on the podcast. So, you know, it's, it's been on my to-do list for a long time to explore her work. Um, we use our own therapeutic use of self in alliance with the activities the child chooses to set the stage to create that entry point. So this maybe 
can be applied to things other than transitions. It's, you know, it's just about getting that engagement with the child or, or you know, that, but joining the child. Um, I like the way that she words it, like allowing the child to lead the way, but we're helping them set the stage to move them to the next point. I could just listen to her words all day. Um, when I hear her speak, she's just so captivating. And each little sentence that she says is just uh, so beautifully and intentionally put together to really um, kind of poke at your re reflective thinking and make you expand your own capacity for being with your client and with yourself. Yeah. Um, one thing that we may, you may not have touched on a lot in your presentation, but I did want to bring into the podcast was the topic of trauma, because, so, um, of course, you know, it's such a humongous topic and it's, it's sort of the in topic of the day these days, everybody's talking about trauma and there's, you know, micro traumas and there's, you know, uh, traumas that last. And then there's, you know, significant traumas, like whether it's abuse or something like that. But, um, that can play a lot into transitions because depending on traumatic experiences that children have had, we may have no clue that they've experienced a trauma um, going into a new place or, you know, um, being with a certain person or whatever. If they have a large reaction, it could be a result of trauma. Well, we talked earlier about um, transitions causing uncertainty and that the uncertainty was disorganizing for the body and the brain, and that maybe in that uncertainty, we lose that brain-body connection. So we have this sense of, I don't feel safe. So I think in that sense, transitions can be traumatic for a child, that, um, you know, that disorganization in their body. And then at the same time, if we think that the core of a traumatic moment is that sense of, I don't feel safe, so I think that's where the trauma piece can come um, within transitions. They don't have to be this big event. They don't have to be this small event happening over time repeatedly. They can be your own body that is a traumatic experience on a, on a daily basis for, for people. Um, so I think that's the connection for me where the trauma piece comes into this. Um, and I think trauma being anything that overwhelms your nervous system. And certainly we see in children in those moments of transition, there's, there's great overwhelm in those big emotions that they're feeling. Yeah, it actually um, flows nicely into what I wanted to do as sort of a wrap up going through the D, the I and the R, developmental individual differences, relationship-based model, DIR floor time. Uh, what my website and podcast is about, uh, this approach, what you discussed there. So I'm, I'm going to go backwards and start with the R. We talked about this a lot now, sort of to recap what we talked about today. The R supports transitions. So I know that you included a quote from occupational therapist Virginia, Dr. Virginia Spielman, the art of over time modifying the relationship to build each individual's empowered sense of autonomy. Um, I love that. Me too. Did you want to talk about the R a bit? Sure. And it's, as we've already said, isn't it, that it's the individual sense, you know, what is it that creates a meaningful transition to them? What creates purpose for them? What do we need to do to support them to have agency in that transition? Um, that it's not a compliance, just do it, you know, just get in the car. Um, how can we support them to, to move at their own pace, with their own meaning, their own purpose, so that their body is organized for itself towards that purpose? Yeah, and um, just that, you know, how much we talk about relationship and that sense of safety, um, once you have those pennies in the bank of the relationship with somebody, you know, it's just such, such um, a sense of safety that comes with that. So um, we highlighted that today in the podcast, uh, you just sort of merge nicely into the I, individual differences, um, 
you talked about in the trauma, like just a lot of children's sensory systems uh, feel trauma every day, just from regular things that some of us don't notice, like whether it's flickering of fluorescent lights, whether it's noises, hear, overhearing every noise and not being able to filter out things that um, our brain, our, our uh, typical brains see as, as not important or filtering them out. Um, the sensory gating system is is not functioning in that way in some kids and they're not filtering stuff out. So that that can be traumatizing hearing and being bombarded by sounds and noises and, and um, you know, sensitivities of touch, tactile sensitivities, like there's, we could go on and on. I wanted to share the screen um, with a couple of slides around this. Um, you, you talked about this no demand approach. So being, and I'm showing for those of you listening on audio, reliable, curious, authentic, respectful, collaborative, humble, appreciative, and reflective. And these, this is sort of turning the eye on ourselves. How can we be all of these things for the child? How can we be humble and respectful and appreciative and authentic and reflective and reliable? And, and that and that's going to depend on our own individual differences as well, like having uh, getting to a state where we can be this way. Um, I've talked about it in the past. I, if I'm trying to do a floor time session outside in the summer in the grass when there's bugs flying around, I'd be totally dysregulated. I wouldn't be able to be curious or collaborative. And, and you know, a lot of these things as my, my capacity for doing that is a lot lower. Did you want to mention these ways of being, you know, how we're using our facial expression, how we're pacing ourselves, how we're using our, ah, thank you, how we're using our voice, um, how we're positioning ourselves. They're all um, contributing to our emotional tone, to the child reading us, to the child feed, feeling us in that moment, um, that we're supporting and we're scaffolding them in that moment through these ways that we're being um and, you know, what configuration of these ways of being do we need in any one moment to support the child and ourself through those transition moments? And I think these ways of being really, that's our most powerful tool, isn't it? Most effective tool that we have in floor time. It's ourself. We don't need all the toys and all the props. We just need ourselves to come back to ourselves to create that intentional pause for ourselves, so that we can deliberately and effectively choose just the right configuration of these ways of being to support in the moment. And for those listening on audio, I'm showing another slide of ways of being where um, Helen brought up facial expressions. So the affect we use, how our eyes are, you know, our widened eyes are different than, you know, neutralized what what is our mouth doing our head position the pacing how slow or fast we move if we're rhythmic uh the pauses that we're using our voice the tone of voice versus a tone of voice volume um prosody i i always forget what does that mean prosody the um kind of like poetry the the sound of your voice i think would be what it is to describe it Okay, and the intonation, the pace you're using, the language, uh, joining the child, it says sharing the experience of the child, which we talked about, and leadership, uh, taking the next steps with confidence and, and having it be predictable, and positioning, proximity, how close are we to the child? If the child is uncomfortable with us being too close, you know, you might notice when you back up, they're a lot calmer. Are we sitting? Are we standing? We talk about coming down to the level of the child. If there's a young child and they're a lot like half our height, we don't want to be standing above them, looking down, talking. We want to come to that level position with them. Uh, are we lying? Are we turning around? Um, so all of these things just make such a big difference in uh, that transition. These are all tools that we can use to help make that transition more smoothly. And I think they're the invitations, Daria, aren't they? They create that invitation approach as opposed to a demand approach. They're all very gentle. They can be very respectful. They're ways of holding the space for that person, that child that's making that transition. 
um, they offer an invitation to us to kind of to wait first, don't they? You know, let's ask those wondering questions. Let's decide how we need to intentionally use ourself. Um, let's join the child in their experience. How will we join? Which of these strategies, these ways of being are we going to use? And then from there, we can expand. We can think about those next steps, how we're going to move to the car seat, how we're going to move to the dinner table. Yeah, and in, in doing that, you had also talked, we also mentioned earlier, this concept of curiosity. And you included a couple of quotes from Frank Ostaseski, and I'm going to share one of them from your slide next. But one of them that, um, another one that you shared was, curiosity being a lack of hope and expectation. And I, you know, I, I harped on this a little bit earlier that it's so hard to be in that moment and just stay in that moment without having hope, like, oh, I hope this ends soon, or, oh, what are they going to do next? And, you know, having that expectation, but really just like kind of a wait and see as an observer, wait, watch, wonder, we say in floor time. Um, so I thought that was... I think that curiosity jar is just essential for me it's just a key piece of my approach to to life to to working in this way it's just harnessing that power of my curiosity because I think when we come at something in a curious way it's just that isn't it it's not judgmental um, it doesn't have an agenda to it it's just literally seeking a little more information so that you can can support um i think it has a sense of compassion to it curiosity it's definitely for me respectful because you're not diving in and doing anything it supports creating that intentional pause that wait so that we can wait watch and wonder um yeah it's a respectful way to be for me and if anyone takes anything away from this podcast i will say take that away <laughs> that, you know, being curious without judgment and just pausing in the moment. Um, that brings me to this quote that you shared about wisdom. So wisdom is not about age or expertise, tools or roles. I have a lot of tools that I have collected over the years, but in serving, I don't lead with my tools. I find that if I start pulling those tools out and setting them down between myself and the client, then one of us is sure to trip over them. So instead, I lead with my humanity. And Helen, I will say, um, I hate the word strategies. And I know we've used it a lot during this podcast. And, you know, we can qualify how we use it because we're not using it in the way that it's used in other ways as well. But it's really what he's saying here, the tools. So we, you know, every parent will always want, you know, I want the instruction book. I want tools. What do I do? Um, but it's important that while you have ideas of things that you can try, that you don't, like he says, put that between you and the child. Because if you're just thinking in your head, okay, will this work? Will this work? You're not really being in the moment, um, staying in the moment. And, and as he says, lead with my humanity. Um I think he works at with end of life um, and hospice. Yeah. But, Isn't that yeah. beautiful though? Where yeah. he says, one of us is sure to trip over them. So mm -hmm. instead I lead with my humanity. And for me, that humanity is just that respect, that curiosity, that being with somebody, not trying to do something, not trying to fix, not trying to change, but just be with that person in their entire being, in their entire way of being. And um, yeah, I think that's just, we should do that more, Daria. Less haste, <laughs> less hurry to the next thing, less need to get rid of something that doesn't feel quite so comfortable. Yeah. Yes, I, it, definitely easier said than done in a lot For of situations. Sure. But um, yeah, so as I said, that that would be my takeaway from this podcast. Um, I thought we would end up, maybe um, you could present a case study or two. I know you presented some in your, in the conference presentation. Um, there's some examples of difficult transitions that parents experience, and then you sort of discuss the process. It's about um, a little girl called Michelle. She's three years old. 
she enjoys playing in the kitchen center and interacting with her friends. But when the teacher announces that it's time to clean up and sit on the carpet for circle time, Michelle gets very upset. She throws toys and pushes the other children. And when the teacher comes near to her, Michelle starts screaming and saying that she's not finished playing yet. So, so I think, Daria. yeah, I think a lot of parents are like, ah, you know, behavior issue. She's, you know, aggressive, defiant. Um, you know, we, we must stop this behavior. But... And I think we need to breathe, don't we? That we're not trying to stop anything, that we need to reframe. We mm -hmm. need to see these behaviors as an expression of what's going on internally for the child, to have some compassion and understanding for that, that this is a difficult moment. Um, how can we support and scaffold? I think the first one is making sure that we're regulated um, that we've acknowledged for ourselves that this is a difficult moment for the child. Um, we're not wanting to hurry it along, however inconvenient it might be in that group setting. Um, well, imagine how chaotic it is, throwing toys, pushing other children. Uh, we have to think about the safety of the other kids. We have to say, no, pushing is not allowed. We, we have to make sure all the other kids don't suddenly get dysregulated. Uh, what if a kid starts crying because they got whacked in the head with one of them? So imagine this mass chaos. Um, and, and then Helen's saying, oh, but the poor little girl. It's, it's very contrary to what, you know, the larger society would, would do in this situation. But let's think about what we did. She was super happy playing. And if she's a neurodivergent child, she's absorbed in that kitchen game. And to pull her out of that and say, no, you have to move and, and come to circle time. And she may or may not like circle time. We don't know. So, you know, in, in this split second, we're sort of assessing this in our head. We're waiting, we're watching, we're wondering, like, what's going on with her? She's experiencing this intense stress. We all do our best in the moment, don't we? But mm -hmm. I think... In the next moment, if we've reflected after the fact that we can do better in the next moment. So hopefully the next day we could give more cues. We could give more suggestions that time at this activity is coming to an end, that we can do that with some warnings for the child, whatever that might mean to her. Maybe it's the start of a song. Maybe it's gently coming over to her personally and letting her know that we will be moving on. Um, maybe there's a, a particular tidy up job that she can help with that supports her to transition. Maybe it's having that one-on-one -on -one support from one of the adults in the room. So I think rather than thinking like in this moment, but how can we use this information to help us be wiser, to help us be more intentional in another moment? And I guess what you're saying that it can be chaotic, can't it? but we have to be calm ourselves. We can't join that chaos. We can't join that dysregulation or we just heighten it even further, don't we? Yes, and a couple of things. First of all, um, in the podcast I did with Dr. Stuart Shanker on self-reg and floor time, it's exactly what he said. Once you're in that chaos, there's not much you can do except get through it. <laughs> and... And you always want to look at the precursors in reflection, like you said. So what happened just before this meltdown exploded? And like you said, plan better for next time. And what can we do next time? And if we're thinking about um, maybe an older child as opposed to the three-year-old, you know, helping that child to, you know, transition in the future as well. So maybe coming up alongside them and saying, oh, it's almost time for this to be done. Hmm. This is a little, and I'm I'm thinking of a tip that Jackie Bartell gave me to use with my son, like, hmm, we have a bit of a problem here. And just waiting, you know, and just sort of posing that, like, you want to keep playing, but playtime's done. Hmm. You know, and and the more the children move along the D to, you know, we talked about the R or the I and going backwards now the D, it, it's such a function of where our children are developmentally, how far you can sort of challenge them along this um, 
idea of helping them through the moment uh, as my son's now 13 and a half. So, you know, he's not, he, I can do so much more with him than I could when he was three, for instance, because he's, you know, in the higher FEDCs now, functional, emotional, developmental capacities. He's, he's able to have back and forth while he's upset. He's able to socially problem solve. Whereas when he was three, no, it was just straight to dysregulation and no engagement. So um, I think, yeah, it's, it's about getting through that moment and, and thinking ahead to the next time and always understanding where the child is developmentally, always having an idea of what their individual differences, their profile is and, and using that relationship. Um, but yeah, I mean, in that moment, um, do you have, in, in discussing that case study, do you have, and even tips that people said at the conference about the other ones, because they're similar situations. The child is dysregulated in the moment of chaos. Um, I think it's that, it's that reframe for, for ourselves really to understand the, the complexity of a transition, I think was where I was going with my conference presentation that where we started this morning was, this seems simple, stop one thing and start the next. But there is just such complexity in doing those things that they have so many um, aspects of their attention um, into the activity that they're doing. Kieran Rose, that you mentioned earlier, talks about this monotropic attention, this monotropism, and how that really gives this full focus to what somebody is doing and how much attention is involved in that, how much energy is involved in that and how complex it is to, to pull back from that full attention, that depth of thinking that's going into that play or that activity, and then be able to, to shift. I think even though this has been a long podcast, we've barely touched on so sure. many aspects of transitions. And um, I hope that people listening or viewing have some takeaways about staying in the moment, you know, respecting the other individual's experience, uh, using the relationship as a vehicle to, you know, transition with allowing the child time and space to initiate um, some kind of adaptive response that we can then, you know, scaffold them into the next activity with. Uh, yeah, for me, um, you know, some simple takeaways for parents, you know, don't be directive, don't have expectations or push them through it. Uh, reframe what you're thinking um, about uh, what needs to be done and understand the child's experience. Try and think about that going forward the next time. So you notice those cues in advance and you can sort of ease them into it. Um, it's all sounds so trite compared to how difficult it can be. And, you know, uh, we get into these ruts of doing things a certain way. And then when we do certain comforting things for our child, they get used to that and maybe a bit reliant on that. So then in times of stress where we can't do those comforting things, our children may melt down and then we feel like, oh, if, if only I had sort of forced them to do it the first time, they wouldn't expect, have these expectations of me. But it's it's just such a dynamic process. And that's the thing is not only is every transition different, but we're changing as well as our child is growing and developing. And, and it's just a matter of having that flexibility to be to regulate ourselves in whatever moment we find ourselves in as a good model for the child to be able to then figure out ways to regulate themselves in whatever moments they find themselves in, if that's a way to summarize what we were talking about today. <laughs> and what's too much comfort, Daria? You know, I think as much comfort, as much support and as much scaffolding that, that we can give to each other, um, I think that's respectful. I think that's authentic. I think that supports somebody to find their own authenticity, to find their own agency, their own way of doing things. But if you've not had that co-regulation, if you've not had that sense of comfort, you know, where do you move from without that sense of safety? 
And, and I, I, I love that too. And I feel like we could now go on another hour talking about that, yes. <laughs> but yeah, Next I mean, time. having those experiences of safety in transitions, you know, okay, now I'm ready. I think about, you know, let's go back to the first example I used of going to school. So, you know, by the, by the second week of school, by the third week of school, I'm not saying day because days can vary. One day you feel sick, one day you're more tired, one day you your breakfast didn't agree with you, whatever it is, but from week to week, the child is like, okay, I'm ready for this now. Bye mom. You know, and they'll go right in. Um, my child still never says bye. It just goes right in, but um, you know, he's more ready. That's all of what we were saying, isn't it? To remove our own agenda, to go Mm -hmm. at the child's pace, to join them, to, um, you know, it's that appreciation, isn't it, of where that person is, what's their journey. And this is a lifespan model. We don't have to hurry. There's no rush (laughs) in floor time. There's no rush in floor time. So thank you so much, Helen, for sharing your presentation material with us. I think it's it's such a topic that people struggle with. And uh, I thank you for giving us all these tips and pointers today. And it was just that there is there's no right way. There is no one way. They're just suggestions. They're just ideas to probe our thinking that we might reframe and reflect a little bit and do something differently and invite a different response the next time. And I will have a transition right now, moving away from hearing Helen's lovely accent, because I I enjoy your accent very much. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I appreciate everything. And thanks again, listeners, please tune in, um, go to affectautism.com. You'll see the links to this podcast blog under blogs, podcasts, look for transitions And there you can see the audio, the video, uh, and the write-up with links and some diagrams of what we showed during the podcast. So thanks again, and stay tuned for the next podcast in two weeks. Thanks for having me. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. We Chose Play is a new series documenting my family's floor time journey. You can see the preview on YouTube and you can register to watch the extended trailer for free at affectautism.com play, or just go to wechoseplay.com. With each episode, you'll glean insights, tips, and reflections, what I learned and what I know now that I would tell myself back then along the way. I hope it will support caregivers in their floor time experience. We chose play. We have joy every day.